Welcome to the Tech and Main Presents Podcast with your host, Sean St. Hill. Sean is the CEO of Tech and Main, a technology consulting firm in Atlanta, Georgia. Listen in as thought leaders share their tips and insights about what's going on in the world of technology. And now, here's your host, Sean St. Hill. Thank you for joining another episode of Tech and Main Presents, where we bring you the best insights from today's leaders and experts in technology. Today, we will be speaking with Yehuda Sunshine. He is the Chief Evangelist and Head of Public Relations for Odex, a leading cybersecurity company specializing in malware prevention solutions. Yehuda, welcome back to the Tech and Main Presents podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always great to, great to catch up with you. Oh, same here, man. So nice. We had to do it twice. So yeah, looking forward to next few minutes that we have together. And so, Yehuda, for those that aren't familiar with your background from the first episode, share a little bit of your background for us. So my my background, I started off originally doing diplomacy, working in Israel-China relations, and I switched into the high-tech world, doing public relations and content writing for, for different high-tech companies, and then eventually kind of finding my niche in the past three years, working in the cybersecurity space. I previously worked for Codex, a cybersecurity company, working in email security, doing public relations and content writing. I wrote a couple of books for them, including one on ransomware and municipal cybersecurity. And by the time this podcast goes live, I will have already started my position at Cyfluencer. As a, it's a, a network kind of connecting cybersecurity influencers with, with cybersecurity companies and startups to get the most out of your content and to be able to really form meaningful conversations that aren't just talking about buzzwords, but are really making an impact. Oh, man, that's awesome. And so because this is the second time that we've had you, uh, tell us a little bit about what you've been up to since the last time you were with us. Well, since the last time we spoke, I, I wrote a book about ransomware, and I think it's it's a good time. There's always a good time for ransomware. So if people want to talk about it, I think there, there's also an audience. And I kind of, I really, I spent this time trying to understand how is this threat evolving? How is this something that, from my perspective, I, I came into it thinking that it's more of a recent thing, understanding that it goes for almost three decades. And the risk is something that, that's been, been both growing and evolving to, to meet different audiences and come to this point where it crosses every sector, every every industry, every business size and impact individuals and, and organizations and even municipalities and, and educational institutions. So it's it's interesting to see how this kind of malware, but anything can kind of permeate the, these aspects of society. Oh, that's awesome. So you mentioned the book on ransomware that you wrote. I'm curious, man, because as someone who hasn't written a book yet, I hear that it can be a daunting process. Can you share a little bit of the creative process and what that looks like? Yeah, so for sure, a book can be a very daunting process. I'm not, I'm not into the, the Hemingway sitting doing 10,000 words a day, screaming at yourself, trying to, to get the words out there. But I think that, that if you're formulaic, if you have a vision uh, and you kind of understand, you know, how am I going to break this up? How am I going to get value added content at all these different levels? Then you give yourself these easy wins. If you're waiting for this like huge manuscript to be able to put it together or on the other end, if you're waiting for 
as soon as I write this book, then everybody is going to take me seriously and I'm going to get to this next thing. I think that that also doesn't work. It has to be, you know, I'm going to to put this out as an article or as a blog or as a panel or as a conversation and kind of let those ideas trickle up. And, and when those come, then I turn one of them into a chapter or another thing and then kind of test this because then at the end, instead of it being something where I don't know if people are going to, to register with it, if the audience is really going to be able to turn something, I can say it's like, well, actually, I've already seen them approve this and I'm going to kind of give them that credit or that credibility in the process. And then it, it's just kind of repackaging it. So as much as I'd like to, to kind of drop a new idea, I kind of almost see it like a 1920s style newspaper serial where you put out a little bit and a little bit and everybody kind of talks about it. And then you have the ideas percolating. And then also I think that it, it's weird to say, but that, that peer pressure element, when you tell everybody, I'm actually writing this book. Well, then they, the secret's out and they know that it's happening and you need to kind of push it. And, and this is kind of part of the process. When you say, I really want to to write this book, but I'm missing these ideas. Can you help me with these ideas? Then it's something where more people are pushing the process along and it gives you a different light. And then the, the other thing I would say is be very merciful with your graphic designer and your editors because they're doing the best that they can. And... There's so many little things that get out there. And I think that sometimes you think you focus that this is your baby. This is like you put so much effort into it and somebody is kind of like blindly approaching it. It's like you know, somebody else is also doing a lot of work and there's just so many things that could go wrong. Like they're not working on in like a Microsoft Word document. It's really different. Right. <laughs> oh, well, like, why does that hyperlink work? It's like <laughs> you. You don't understand. It's it's not like that. <laughs> well, Yehuda, I, I think a couple of things I'm getting from what you're sharing about this creative process. One is respect the ability of the person that you've reached out to, right? You can certainly, well, I'm assuming that, you know, these people are either friends or colleagues or, or maybe not, uh, are these people that you know, or how did how did you connect with the editors and the uh, the graphic designer? Oh, the, these are like friends, colleagues in house. Okay. But even even if you find somebody outside, like let's say you want to you want to do something independently, you're going to go on Fiverr, you're going to go on one of these, you know, uh, um, like Upwork, something where you can independently hire somebody to do a project. I think that there's a level of respect where you have to understand that. Just like you're doing your job, they're doing their job. But also communication in a visual sense is very, very difficult. These people are very good at what they do, but it doesn't mean that they had this dream or they were in the shower and were blinded by vision and then can like, like maybe they were in that shower with you. That's a different story altogether. But like, I think that you need to give everybody a little bit of credit and say like, it's, it's a process. And in the end, we're going to meet in the middle, not my vision is going to dominate. And maybe they've done this before and they have some valuable insight that can really change how you're viewing. And I think especially with editors, it's hard to, as a writer, to think this person understands my vision or my work better than me. But it's not that. It's that they understand who you're speaking to better than you do. 
So maybe they don't have the, the same understanding of your words, but they do have a better understanding of who you're trying to convey it to. And if they don't get that, that understanding, they don't get that perspective, that link, then it doesn't really matter what your vision is because you're also not getting it across. No, that's a, that's, that's a good point. So yeah, mutual respect, your vision, your goals, if you will, for the project don't have to dominate. There's, um, there's a sense of esprit de corps, right? There's collaboration. There's, you know, hey, yes, it's my idea, mm-hmm. but that vision can't come to pass unless I have some other people, you know, helping, right? Kind of, you know, mm-hmm. the lifting of the arms, if you will. It's also the expectations. Like, at the end of this, am I expecting somebody to come to a sword, like, with a sword and knight me? You know, and just like, like, I just wanted to tell you, you you created penicillin, and before this book about a topic that somebody else had written about before was written, we had never well we, we put yourself into perspective here where I'm doing this because I think it's interesting because it, it aligns with our collateral. It's something that that's valuable. It's something that you know instead of instead of writing articles without a trajectory, when you have this linking theme, it kind of makes it more meaningful. But then you put it down, it's like if somebody connects to this and somebody really feels like it makes an impact it's probably more because of how the graphic designer structured the 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 different images and how they conveyed that feeling right how the editor said that you should slim it down or make this into a subtitle more so than that really bulky footnote that you were insistent on putting on you you think that that's what's going to get you in there it's like there's different subtle things that, that kind of convey your message. And unless you put all of those parts together, you're getting kind of overblown by the words. Like, I don't want to dumb down my generation, but I think that having a graphic designer who can say, I know that you're very excited, but we need to change the font. We need to make something where it's simpler because what you're talking about is too complex. If they're squinting their eyes while they're looking at it, you're going to lose them. It's valuable. That's that's good stuff, man. So Yehuda ransomware, right? For those in the audience that may not be familiar with it, and I'm honestly not sure who isn't, but as a noted author, give us your take on ransomware. What is it? So ransomware is a malware attack that aims to leverage your data or your private private information for financial gain. But increasingly, it's also for political gain and for a varying range of topics that, that really is, how am I going to leverage comp- compromised data across systems? And I, it's been around since 1982, if you would believe it. One of the uh, original AIDS researchers, Dr. Pop, he got a list of, of names of people and then sent them floppy disks through the mail with a P.O. box number to send your ransom payments to in Panama. And that was kind of the origin. So I think it's it's interesting to see as something that seems so high tech that in a minute closes down the colonial pipeline and takes down the, the data of, of dating, dating, web, uh, dating applications and uses that to, to try and manipulate groups of minorities and, and at-risk people. It's fascinating to see you could strip this down into the same kind of extortion that's been going on since the Lindbergh baby. That is very interesting. One, 
the origin story, right? I was not aware of that. But when you think about how how things are reported today, right? Two two aspects. One is because of how quickly things are reported, we think things are happening in real time or near real time. And two, we think because of the recency effect, right, that these things only started a couple weeks ago or a couple years ago, when in fact, not only is ransomware, as you said, as old as, well, prominently since the early 80s, but we have to remember that's a completely analog thing, right? Mailing someone floppy disk. And for those of you in the audience that aren't familiar with what a floppy disk is, Google it. Google it on your on your phone and then have a hologram of Tupac show you. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's actually very ironic that this doctor was mailing floppy disks and that and I'm sure there were some that actually did mail a ransom payment, you know, to that P.O. box, you know. Or maybe they went to the they went to like the uh, the Western Union and they like wired money right, to right. the P.O. box guy. But either way, that is super analog, right? That is very non-digital. And so to think that people have transferred that heinousness and now perpetrating that in the digital world, it's it's sad and interesting all at the same. I mean, I, I think it's fascinating to see how in that process, when we talk about the beginning, it was a lot more like a traditional ransom. You know, you're having the very analog back and forth, and then you have to physically go send it. Now everything is so fast-paced that you can hide some of this shame. And, you know, a lot of ransomware attacks go go unnoticed or unpublicized because the, the consequences of these companies having something like this get out into the media is way worse than paying the ransom itself. But I think that you can almost depersonalize or dehumanize the process when it's just in the computer. And you're not, I'm just making these clicks. I'm not, I'm not kind of showing my face in the process. And, and when it, when it's this data, a lot of people, I don't think that they realize there's so much data out there that they're putting. There's so much personal information. They think that it's inconsequential. It's not important. That's until you've gotten hacked. That's until your financial records have been compromised. That's until somebody steals your identity and then gets a driver's license and then gets a bunch of, you know, there's a million different things that can come out there. Right. What are you doing? Well, it's, it's, it's funny, Yehuda, because I recently interviewed a gentleman who is um, the director of technology for a public school system here in the States. And he mentioned something that I hadn't even thought of before. And it's when you have a ransomware event and you're extracting data from a school system, right? If you are getting the social security number of third grader, let's say, Mm -hmm. right? It's going to be years before that child knows that they've been the victim of a data breach, right? Because it's it's only when they go to get credit in their own name, you know, mm-hmm. once they're 18 and they're off at college and, you know, they're getting their first apartment, you know, applying for their first job. And they're like, oh, wait a minute, you've had a car for the last 10 years. <laughs> and then the kid's like, wait a minute, I'm 18. 
I didn't have a car when I was eight years old. I mean, that, that's what I think is going to be interesting. Just like we know how ransomware is a service, the big thing is their customer service is amazing. Is it going to be that, that hackers are leveraging this specific information and say, I'm going to conduct a hack on a school because this information is going to give you 10 years without anybody soliciting, you know, like a background check. Or this is going to be more highly valued versus something where it's a lower credit rating. It's something that's more likely to be seen. And I think that it's going to be very interesting as hackers market this data and they specialize the hacks. Why are they going to be doing it? Are political partners going to be saying, I'm going to be hacking critical infrastructure and specifically hospitals and leveraging that as a military or offensive tool? Am I going to be accessing financial institutions, not for their, not for their money, but to be able to say that these are powerful partners that I'm going to be targeting in an external attack in the future? There's all sorts of things that you could be laying the groundwork where instead of it being a one-off event, it's one seed that's being planted for greater understanding in the future. Yeah, that's, that's it. So there's, again, that heinous aspect to it, but then there's also that insidious strategic aspect where Mm -hmm. yes if i'm extracting data from a school system i've now got essentially a 10 to 15 year head start and i'm able to safely quote unquote Mm -hmm. you know put that information out sell it manipulate it do whatever because again sean is a third grader right now and how do you how do you mitigate that risk after the fact? Because let's say I'm the municipality, I'm the educational institution, I'm the, the insurance company that's responsible to negotiate this, and I determine that it's easier to make a payment than to, to risk it. I make the payment, I get the data back. What's to say that they haven't made a copy of that data and they're still selling it on the dark web? You've decided that what I can do in the moment is try and pay the sum. That's not going to work. So then we have to go earlier into the facts. So now we actually have to educate people on cyber risk. We need to, to take the steps and the processes to, to lay the infrastructure to protect ourselves. We need to update our systems. We need to have like a, an actual relationship with IT instead of seeing them almost as the, the maids of our office. It's like they're not here to pick up after you. They're here to do a strategic job that's just as important as any other business aspect. And when we don't take all of these into perspective, it's like the idea of paying for prisons or paying for preschools. Are you trying to, to deal with the end product? Or are you trying to think enough about how this process happens and then where are you going to allocate the investment? Oh, excellent point. So sticking with ransomware, Yehuda, I want to get your thoughts on companies that you're familiar with, companies that you've worked for, what have you. How are you seeing them deal with ransomware? Well, I, I think that, that it's a multi-factor approach. I think that a lot of people are trying to, to put in this, you know, defense in depth kind of perspective. We're going to put layers of cybersecurity. We're going to, to try and focus beyond the buzzwords, but I think that it's also difficult because a lot of people have to appease the buzzwords. They have to say, we need to do the, this training that isn't so effective because if I don't do it, my HR is not going to feel like we have checked that box. And trying to convey to, to non-technical C-suite, it's also, it remains very difficult because if they don't see that this is directly impacting me, they're still going to take a lot of the shortcuts. So I think that the, the illicit hacker community has been very kind 
in attacking all sectors and all businesses and all sizes uh, of organizations to show that everybody is susceptible. But I think that there's there's still this idea that because cyber risk is confusing, it's too expensive, it's too complicated, that addressing it in a finite way is just it's not really so tactful. And I think that a lot of people continue to fall into those same approaches. With that said, I I do see that there's more of a push towards early education for cyber awareness, trying to do something that's more consistent, the gamification process where we're making cyber education and, and cyber skills into something where it's worthwhile and not just something that's stagnant. It's kind of starting to show its dividends, but I think that there's still a lot of, naivete about are we at risk people still don't see that their small businesses are at risk and i think that that in 2022 more and more small businesses are going to be attacked i think that that more and more people are coming to the understanding that cyber insurance and paying a ransom isn't going to achieve the aim but it's very very difficult when you think of you know especially for a small business if they're attacked within 18 months i think the the stat is between 60 and 80% of those businesses are going to go under. So it's very, very difficult to be able to make the equation that even though I don't think that the long-term outcome is going to be the best, if I don't make this, this move right now, there's not going to be any pieces to pick up. And I think that that's very difficult because the risk remains, but I don't think that people are prioritizing ransomware to the level which is necessary and taking advantage of the easy wins. They're not updating their systems. They're not making sure that their configuration settings are optimized. They're not really taking this cohesive process in cloud migration where they're saying, what am I doing that's right here and what's going to be at risk? It's great. It's great. We need to move to the cloud. But you also need to understand what you're doing and how you're putting your data out there when when you're doing it. I think that the more conservative approach that we take, the slower the steps that we we kind of do and the more that we get buy-in from everybody across the organization, the better chance we can mitigate cyber risks. The more that we try and say that ransomware is a problem for IT or it's something that the CISO has to address, it kind of, it's it's passing the buck. We all need to deal with it and that person is also going to get fired. Yeah, it's, it's everyone's issue. You know, just like I was going to say the old saying, but it's, it's actually probably pretty recent sales is everyone's responsibility right i think that's that the same can be said for you know security it's it's everyone's responsibility you know it's not just um, an it function it's not just hey we've got we've got our security outsource no Mm -hmm. it's it's as much the responsibility of you know the business development representative as it is your security analyst. So, and it's rewarding people for asking questions. I think that a lot of people want to get in trouble. They don't want to be the guy that brings attention to a problem or rocks the vote. But especially in Israel, you know, there, there's a quality where people say, if you speak up, we're going to listen to it. And we need that level of engagement because if you're not willing to say something doesn't look right, then when it's really wrong, it's going to be too late to pick up the parts. And I, I think that, that even if it's a false flag, just saying, oh, this is the guy in IT who I'm supposed to call. And now I'm appreciative that he walked me through this and he's not really so intimidating 
or this is, he's going to give me a, or she's going to give me a, a solution that can really help me in a lot of situations. It's breaking down those barriers of communication and saying it could be tough, but until we ask these questions and understand the situation and understand this risk, we're going to continue to deal with the consequences. That That is so true, Yehuda. That is so very true. All right, let's 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 talk to our young people. And I'm going to ask you, what advice would you give a young person looking to get into cybersecurity? Um, so I'm going to give an answer that kind of goes towards my strengths because I'm not a technical person. I'm not an IT person. I don't have that, that DevOps background. And I think that that's really important that if you're interested in cybersecurity, go towards what your skill set is and try and make it work. There's a ton of different roles in every cybersecurity organization where you're actively in the industry and you can still use your skill set to benefit them. So like myself, I'm a, I'm a writer, I'm a public relations person. I like talking to Sean. E- even if you can't write the code, it doesn't mean that you can't be actively involved, have relationships with these people who are doing it, understand the industry, understand the product and get your feet wet. And you can you can evolve as that goes, but there's no background that, that prohibits you from entry. And if, if you want to be able to, to get into the more technical side, there's lots of different opportunities to do so, which are in non-traditional educational avenues that, that really cater to, towards people and their skill sets who haven't necessarily been successful in, in what the what the traditional college system would be or something that would be more in the, in the liberal arts. And I think that that's great too. So having something where the field is so broad the community is so warm and welcoming, and there's so many different opportunities to leverage your particular skill set to, to kind of dive in. It really gives this chance where this is the permutation where you can put yourself in and it's really exciting. And then once you get into it, you can say, maybe this is something that I love, or maybe I'm confident enough in my skill set that I'm not going to let the, the name or the perceived barrier block me. And I'm going to kind of get my get my way into it and make those relationships. But I think cyber is it's just like anything else, except there's so many more people who are willing to help you and, and mentor you and guide you in the process and are receptive to, to how difficult it could be. But I think that it's really it's really, really open for those who want to take it. There's a poem by Walt Whitman. And one of the lines is, and you contribute a verse, right? And I think that's the thing that comes to mind. It's the the contributing averse. It's lending your skill set to the cybersecurity ecosystem. I was on a panel this last week, and I mean there are some amazing practitioners out there. Right? Um, shout out Mitchell and the folks at Crypto Harlem. I mean they are doing amazing things. Right, but I'll say this, you know. As someone who is familiar with writing code and with some of the tools of the trade, hacker tools, I don't dabble in it every day, right? And I and I would not disrespect my tech, my technical, my technically proficient brothers and sisters, you know, who are in these tools and in these systems and are hardcore blue team or hardcore red team or hardcore mm-hmm. purple team, right? I, I mean, there, there are some amazing people that do that. But Yehuda, I, I wouldn't say that you as a writer or a PR person contribute any less 
to the ecosystem than they do, right? You just contribute in a different way. So, I, I, I'm lucky enough. I get the opportunity. Like I love, I have a weekly meeting with my CTO or I, I had for the past almost two years. And how can I articulate his vision? How can I say, it's like, where are you reading? What are you looking at? What are people receptive to? What What's something that I'm not seeing that you're excited about? You know, and, and having that understanding where it's like, I'm another cog, but if I can be that, like the, the megaphone to, to these people's visions, then I have an important role and they appreciate you. And then you're, you're just as integral, you know, you're just, you're just giving them the, the polish on, on their ideas. And it's, it makes you feel like you're an arm instead of you have to pull the whole body. No, exactly. All right. So Yehuda, I'm curious, who are you following that you find to be innovative? It might seem kind of out there. I love Victor Wooten. Do you know Victor Wooten? I do not know Victor Wooten, Yehuda. Victor Wooten is probably one of the most innovative bass players there's ever been. Okay. He is just amazing. He play he plays in a band, uh, Bella Fleck of the Fleck Tones with Bella Fleck, who's one of the most interesting banjo players uh, of all time. And just his approach to music and, and the instrument, I just find it really interesting because he thinks very much out of the box. Okay. But he understands how this music works he could work in that system he could turn it on but knowing that nuance and being able to to work outside of it i think is is great and seeing him processing these jazz licks where i've heard this a million times as like i've never heard anybody do anything like that i've never i've never thought about approaching something in the same way every but you do it completely and totally 180 and i just Having having something like that where you you just you turn on your on your ears and just say, I never would have thought about that. And then how am I gonna how am I gonna approach? Well, if this is a 180 from how I was thinking about about this song about this this structure, maybe I should be more receptive to something else. Maybe I wrote something else. Maybe I should kind of look at the other way. What are the what's the other side have to say? And it kind of it kind of makes everything more fluid. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and talking about like transferable skills i mean so what you're getting from victor wooten actually is applicable in other areas of life it's Mm -hmm. hey victor wooten has this like i said you know different spin on how to play a jazz lick or how to do his bass run or whatever but that that same approach if you're an athlete and, and maybe you do a certain number of reps and a certain type of exercise, maybe looking at doing something different, switching up the amount of weight or the number of reps. I mean, just even in that, you can be creative, right? You can, you can be different. Being malleable and understanding that it, it's not about being right or wrong. It's about expanding your consciousness and understanding what are we trying to get? Maybe we have different objectives. You thought that we should play this thing this way, or we should think this way, or we should we should have this conversation, and I need to achieve this. Maybe we're looking to achieve different things, and maybe I should I should think about something differently. Maybe I should be more more open minded or more receptive to to different ideas. And like we were talking about, like editing a book, 
you can come into something and have this very rigid view of what you want to get out of it. You can also say that the more people that can contribute, the more people that, that give their insights and say, I want it to be this way because it, it would connect to me or make me feel it, then you have this buy-in that makes impact. You're no longer doing something for yourself. You're doing something that's going to have these waves. And if you're if you're trying to think more externally, you know, if we're trying to, to write something that's going to, to get at somebody's heartstrings, or if you're trying to have a conversation that's going to to get somebody thinking two or three days later, the way that that happens is is by getting that engagement. And I think that the more that we understand that it's an awesome set of a me, the, the better chance that you can really do something successful. So thinking about Victor Wooten and his innovative style or, or how you're going to be able to take the ideas of others and, and kind of refine your product, it's all the same thing. Agreed, my friend. Agreed. All right. So Yehuda, I want to end with this final question. This is actually the first time I have asked this question. So you will be the first one to answer this, but I'm curious, what kind of world do you want to leave for your children? I think I want to leave a world that's more interested in having a conversation than hearing the, the answer or figuring out where it goes. I think that I want to, to leave a world where people can understand that having a different view or a different background or a different approach doesn't cage you off from being able to have a relationship, but it just gives you a different opportunity to, to see a broader worldview. And I think that people are, are really, really hard set that everything needs to be one way or I only want to surround myself with one kind of person. And I really want to leave a world where everybody can says, say that we're all different and that not only is that fine, but the only way that I understand the beauty of what I can bring to the world or what you can is by having us together. When I surround myself by myself, then, then you get this complex of my, you know, you're, you're in a, like a, in a vacuum. All the ideas just keep on elevating and elevating. It's like, I, I want to hear all of the ideas. I want to hear what everybody has to say. Oh, I, I love that kind of world. That kind of world is actually what connected you and I, right? I mean, I've got, my bro Yehuda sitting over in Israel, you know, as we're recording this, right? And through the beauty of technology and mutual admiration and mutual interest, you know, we struck up a friendship and here we are talking officially for the podcast for the second time. But I mean, we've had a number of conversations over the last year, year and a half, and that's that's a beautiful thing, man, you know, because you don't have to look the same. You don't have mm -hmm. to think the same, right? You just have to be willing to allow the other person the space to exist and to appreciate their humanity. And yeah, it's that simple, folks. It really yeah. is. All, all you have to do is appreciate your neighbor and smile. It's I think people don't realize you don't have to make everything so deep and personal and emotional, you know, like I grew up in Baltimore, like our sports teams kind of suck sometimes. So sports, okay. And it's really hot and humid. So sports and the weather are kind of off the table. Is there anything else that's nice to talk about? Yes. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. Be creative, be nice, be pleasant. And, you know, like, just think it's like, 
I can get something out of this relationship if I'm open-minded and I'm receptive. You don't have to always have your guard up and think that somebody's out to get you. Think that it's like, I've been given this opportunity to meet these people, to expand my consciousness and to understand what did their experience give them? Maybe it was different than mine. And maybe that's going to, to kind of open up my understanding for the world. That could be a positive thing. Absolutely. And so Yehuda, we've come to the end of our time together, man. Again, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for your friendship. It means a lot. Um, but before we go, what's the best way for people to stay in contact with you? The best way is to, to follow me on LinkedIn. And to, I mean, that's really it. Follow me on LinkedIn. You can email me at my personal, with my personal email at yehudasunshine at gmail.com. Check us out at cyfluencer, C-Y-F-L-U-E-N-C-E-R dot C-O-M. And, uh, Check out, uh, check out Song St. Hill. I'm always going to be commenting on what he has to say. There you go. And so with that, Tekame Presents family, thank you as always for listening. And be sure to tune in next time when we will have another technology expert share their wisdom. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to another episode of Tech and Main Presents. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Don't forget to tell your friends. And thanks for being a part of the Tech and Main Presents community.